0: it's Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. This week, I have the joy of talking with Maggie Cook. Maggie has spent the last 12 years building a career in trust and safety, a relatively new profession that typically refers to teams at tech companies who ensure people using their platforms and services stay safe. She began her career at Facebook in 2010 and now works with DoorDash with a similar focus on critical issues. I met Maggie when she invited me to work with her at Facebook and was, and still remain, truly inspired by her tenacity, intentionality, and integrity with which she does her work. Maggie is someone I talk about frequently when folks are feeling discouraged about their ability to affect change in the world around them. I think we all have a lot to learn from her. Just a reminder that we'd love to hear from you, and if you have any questions for us, you can find us on our site at TraumaStewardship.com and through Instagram at futuretrippingwithlaura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. Today, I have the delight of getting to be in conversation with my wonderful colleague, Maggie Cook. Maggie, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm so excited.
0: So we've known each other for years, and I got to meet you through an invitation you extended for me to come do some work with you at Facebook when you were at Facebook. So mm-hmm. for our listeners, share with us anything you would like folks to know about you in terms of your work, who you are, just anything just as we dive in.
1: Yeah. Um. So probably most relevant to our conversation. Um, I spent the last 12 years working in the trust and safety space, which I think is how, how you and I met. Um, I started at Facebook in 2010, back when they were first establishing a, a safety team. And um, now there's like this whole profession around trust and safety and people kind of know the language around trust and safety which sort of represents this group of people that work at tech companies that kind of do, you know, this this work to keep the platform safe and make sure that people are having safe experiences. Mm -hmm. But at the time it was like such a new profession. Right. Um, And we were all kind of just volunteering to do some of the safety work on our own time or like not on our own time, but you know, as a side project. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, so I, I kind of grew up with this profession.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: think as I've evolved in, in this work, I've become very interested in how to keep the people doing the work safe. So it started out with my interest in users and interest in keeping people safe who are using platforms. Mm-hmm. It evolved into how do I protect the people around me who are doing this work and are, um, you know, really extending themselves emotionally to, you know, on behalf of, like, the community, and that's how I met you. I invited you to come speak with our team because of the work that you do in this space, Um, and I, you know, have since been really interested in how do I support trust and safety from a resilience perspective, Mm -hmm. but also from, like, the system of trust and safety, so something that you taught me is, just the system around support, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just training. It's not just wellness tips. It's like this whole system of does the structure, you know, support its people. And so I've gotten a lot more involved in the community as a whole and and trying to support the the profession. Um, What else would I share about myself? I live in Texas. It's really hot. I recently got (laughs) married. I love golden retrievers and I read a lot on my downtime. Those are my like (laughs) other things that I do. (laughs)
0: So Maggie, correct me if I'm wrong, but here's what I remember is Mm. when we met, you were quite young. I mean, you had been working for some time, but were quite young. And you were one individual at Facebook (laughs) who recognized that what Facebook was asking of a number of employees was... Quite problematic in that there was not the support, training, infrastructure in place to help mitigate the vicarious trauma that those employees were experiencing because of the work that was required of them. And my understanding was you were somebody who had that instinct, self awareness, understanding, and you individually, Maggie figured out how you were going to take care of your colleagues. And (laughs) I'm bringing that up because you're somebody I talk about all the time when folks I work with are very discouraged and demoralized working in these larger systems and these larger structures, and they're feeling a sense of powerlessness and some hopelessness that they can affect change. And I will always come back with, let me tell you about my wonderful colleague, Maggie, (laughs) and what she figured out how to do. So did I get any of that wrong? Or am I right in that it was that extraordinary? I mean, you're not going to say that about yourself. (laughs) But I can say that it was really extraordinary that you individually had that clarity and then was like, wait, hold up. Totally not okay. What's unfolding? We need to do something about this.
1: Yeah. So I think that's a very complimentary interpretation of what happened. I was definitely young. I would say that um, just kind of backing up to when all this started, uh, you know, I think that no one had an understanding at the time of what tech companies were going to see, you know, no one mm-hmm. in- invented, no one invented any of these platforms with the with the idea that there was going to be all this stuff, you know, on the platforms that they would need to to manage.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so, um the company did actually have resource some resources in place. They were not like branded or socialized or popular among the teams that were like doing this work. So, for mm-hmm. example, the company had like, you know, EAP resources or like sort of like trainings that some of the employees could have taken. It, it's sort of like this at the time it was sort of this group of people that was really like stubborn about doing the work and and not needing that type of support right. and what I think I did recognize that you did call out is we're not really like proactively sort of convincing people that they should take care of themselves mm-hmm. right right and um i I was fortunate enough to work with really amazing management that and this is actually not exclusive to this work, the culture at Facebook at the time, and I've left, so I don't know what it's like now, um, was very much like if you identify a problem, we'll support you in trying to fix it. Mm-hmm. And so I had this like really amazing management team who went, as soon as I identified that this was in, you know, that we could be sort of like evangelizing this, this self-care stuff more um, and, you know, supplementing it with some additional programming and stuff like that they were like, go for it. Right. Um. And so that's kind of how I got involved.
0: Okay. Um. And so, okay. So with that, again, mm-hmm. you're not going to hype yourself up here, but uh, let me just, <laughs> let me, let me go back and perseverate on this point a bit. How did you, how did you, you had a, you had a ton of responsibility. You had so much going on. You were working a lot, hmm. lot of demands on your time. Like, how did you even get to that place of like, wait, 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 wait. Because again, I want to just, I want, I want just over communicate this point. Like you are not in a tiny organization. You're in Facebook. I hear what you're saying that, yeah, when folks created this, totally, there was lots that they didn't know. And also, I mean, this had been going on some time that the content Mm. moderators were having a lot of exposure. It wasn't like the training wasn't there that needed, there, there was a lot that was very, 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 problematic about what had been going on. And you had this very clear vision around that we have to change this. So Mm -hmm. can you remember what it was that had you believe that, understand that? And this is for anybody and also for Mm -hmm. all the young adults I work with, who sometimes can feel a bit overwhelmed or at a loss on how to navigate. Just anything you can remember about that time of being able Mm -hmm. to have this sense of personal agency of, wait, something needs to change.
1: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know what I've found working with other trust and safety teams at other, other companies that this is so common that there's one person who is the person who, you know, no matter what's in place or, or who, how long it's been or whatever, that there's one person who like really takes on this role of, you know, I'm not necessarily the manager sometimes, or I, you know, they're not necessarily an HR and I actually think it's kind of best placed with, with sort of um, I wouldn't call them spokespeople, but someone who is just on the team as a peer and can speak to, Hey guys, it's really important that we take care of ourselves while we're doing this work. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that I was, Maybe more interested than some people in are that, you know, are in that, in that type of work. But I find that that's so common in trust and safety, Mm -hmm. that there's these sort of like implanted people who've taken on either an unofficial or official Mm -hmm. role of Mm -hmm. just, just saying, this is not, we can't be reactive here. And that's so tempting, no matter Mm -hmm. what is offered to just sort of like wait until something's wrong instead of being proactive about taking care of yourself um what was it at the time um i think i was just like working on these tough issues and it's probably just something that my parents <laughs> instilled in me of you know if you're facing something hard you shouldn't do it alone hmm. um and I, I didn't find it hard in terms of i was not like stressed out by the work itself but what i mean by that is if there are things happening around you that are troubling in any way that that's not something that you should just keep inside of yourself and deal with on your own, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. And I think that an extension of that idea was just watching my coworkers sort of try to do that. Um, when I don't think anyone was asking them to, but we all work in this really sort of individualist society. And also in, in, um, you know a, a, these companies that hire people who are like go-getters, the classic, like, I hate the phrase type A, but yes. you know what I mean when I say yeah. type A, um, people who are individually motivated. And so seeing people around me who, you know, in the absence of someone saying, hey, hey, wait a second, we don't have to do this on our own. We can do it together. I think just they weren't going to, <laughs> right. you know? It does. Yeah. And so I think that's the piece of things that I recognized um, and vocalized and then had support to, to prioritize. I think I just, that's how my parents are. You know, they're always, they're always impressing on my siblings and I, that things are not individual responsibility. They're sort of communal
0: responsibility. Mm-hmm. Oh, Maggie, that's really something. So many people I talk with know about content moderators and then trust and safety and mitigating harm there. And so many people who use the internet have no idea. So let's just pause for a second. And can you share like at a really just foundational level, you know, who who I was working with back in the day with you, Mm -hmm. and then a little bit just about that field and now what you're doing at DoorDash.
1: Yeah, so um, most people know about content moderators through some articles that have been recently published about what they do, but I think there's kind of a lack of understanding of the, the profession as a whole. Um, so I would call the profession trust and safety. And what I would say about trust and safety is it's a group of people who are really mission driven to create communities where people are safe and free of harm you know, while they're using whatever products or services that are offered. Um, And in the case of content moderation, that is often taking down content that doesn't comply with community standards or community guidelines. Um, And, you know, there's, there's actual exposure that goes along with that. There's also like philosophical questions around like boundaries around it, which is more of like a content, you know, policy role, which I've personally never done. Um, but there's sort of all these complexities within trust and safety, uh, you know, where these questions around like what does cause harm and what should we, you know, allow and and take down and all those things. Um, in terms of what the role actually entails, it it kind of depends on what role you're in. So people are familiar with content moderation because they hear stories of people like seeing all these you know, images and taking them down. And that's sort of the extent to which they know about it. Oftentimes those individuals are actually using whatever they have been, you know, looking at to make the the platform safer overall or like the service that they're working on um, safer overall. So they're not just looking at stuff for lack of a better phrase. They're also using that information to create a better community. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that actually is a big piece of resilience in the end is seeing the end result of your work, actually improving the community that you're trying to protect. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that is really motivating. And a lot of my colleagues who I've worked with have also, you know, kind of named that as one of the things that is motivating Mm -hmm. Uh, at DoorDash. I do a similar role. So in the gig economy, it is less what is written and what is posted. And it's more you know, the, the people who are using the service. So the people who are delivering food, the customers on the other end who are receiving the food and the, and the merchants who are selling um, the food.
0: Okay. So where's content moderation and trust and safety? Where do you find it?
1: Yeah. You mean in terms of what types of companies require content moderation? Exactly. So it's interesting (laughs) anywhere on the internet or on a phone, where you can share uh, a, an image, a video, or text. That could be anything from uh, you give me a website, and I can tell you where the content moderation is. Even apps like you know Spotify. Someone's gonna upload an inappropriate image to be the cover photo of their podcast or their you know their like playlist or something. Mm-hmm. There's like a million different ways that content moderation comes into play mm-hmm. what the what then happens from there is someone has to look at those images in order to decide whether we should take them down or not mm-hmm. um, that's traditionally what people say when they say content moderation mm-hmm. that is also though videos text you know inappropriate text can be uploaded mm-hmm. um, you know voice voice messages there's like any any type of thing that you can post in an online format, typically has to be seen by someone in order to take it down unless there's really good detection in place that can automatically sort of remove some of it. Mm -hmm. Um, that is, that is typically where you'd find content moderation. Mm
0: -hmm. So with trust and safety, when folks are working in trust and safety, like what do you think some people don't understand about that work itself, the trust and safety work Mm -hmm. itself and given how many people use the internet and how many people are online Mm -hmm. and how many people are using these platforms. What do you think folks don't understand and don't appreciate about that work?
1: That's such a good question because it's one of the things that I, I think there's a very big misunderstanding and it's because it's a young profession. Um, I think that one of the things that people don't understand about trust and safety is people love being in trust and safety, actually. Mm. A lot of the people in this work really love it. I always joke that you don't work on trust and safety if you want to stop because you'll keep doing it, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so many people start in fields like content moderation, where it is more, you know, looking at content and deciding whether to take it down or leave it up or making sort of, you know, responsive decisions where someone is writing into you and you're saying, oh, I'm sorry that happened to you. Let me give you our, you know, victim resources or whatever. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then they start evolving and working on bigger projects and more preventative work. And they see the results of that work and they get really excited and they see the impact that they can have. Right. So, they're, they're saying that, you know, you can respond. They often start from the ground up. So they're often people who are starting in these roles where they've really worked with people one-on-one responding to um, individual cases where someone has felt unsafe. Mm-hmm. And now they're getting to affect change by like launching products or programs or working on content policy where they can create like actual safer environments online. Mm-hmm. And I people love it. I mean, the people that I work with, they're so motivated uh, mm-hmm. to, to sort of like up level the whole profession. They're so generous with each other. And I think there's like a pretty strong bond, even, you know, within the teams, but also across companies with other trust and safety teams. Mm-hmm. I love working anytime I get to work with another trust and safety team on some kind of like collaborative project. Right. It's always like my people, you know? Right. Yes. Um, and I, I think there's just like a, a pretty strong glue that holds the the whole profession together.
0: Yeah. And so talk to us a little bit about what did you notice and what do you know from your own experience? What are the consequences of exposure to all of this? So exposure to taking things down online, exposure to seeing stuff online and then trying, as you said, to be able to then use that to increase the safety, what you're describing at DoorDat, like what can you share with us, what do you see those long-term consequences being for employees who are doing that work? Because I think this is another thing that folks do not appreciate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, gosh, for myself, I would say that the it's been an evolution. I think that overall it has made me grow a lot. Like it's made me really understand human behavior in a way that I didn't before I think that I've grown to be a lot more compassionate through the work that I've done. So seeing that um, oftentimes, you know, seeing that people with people have really multifaceted lives and sometimes people do one bad thing and it doesn't make them a bad person um, or they post one thing that is inappropriate um, or just through the experts that I've worked with, I've gotten gained such an understanding of how, you know, people go down certain paths that aren't Aren't necessarily like healthy or productive or good for people. Um, I've seen like harm is a lot less black and white than I used to. So I would say that I I see you know it's not so much like bad people do bad things. It's more um, we have an opportunity to sort of like influence each other to be less you know people who are causing more harm or less harm. And I think I've just grown to to really understand human behavior a lot better in terms of like the long-term effects. I think that I don't, that part, I don't know that I can speak to from like an actual place of authority <laughs> just because I'm not like a a, a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that the profession's even been, uh, you know, has have been around long enough to know. Mm-hmm. What I will say is if you think about um, what you're exposed to through trust and safety work, where you're looking at Um, and talking to people who've experienced harm, um, or people who are causing harm, I think it's very similar to, you know, social work, or being a lawyer, or a journalist, or any other place where you're really exposed to one type of action over and over or one type of behavior over and over. Mm -hmm. Um, It starts to it can start to kind of like warp how you see things, unless you're very proactive about taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. So you know, um, if you're seeing if you're working on something violent every day, day in and out and that's like what you're tasked with and you're doing nothing to think about other parts of humanity, right. it's not a big leap to start to think like maybe the whole world is pretty violent and people are violent. So I think that that sort of like exposure to one type of thing can mm-hmm. be problematic if you're not doing anything to mitigate it. Um So, in sort of absence of being proactive there, I think it can be, it can skew your perspective in an unhealthy way.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. So, Maggie, let's go back for a second to what you were talking about in terms of how you feel that this has helped you become more compassionate, more nuanced view of humanity, that people Mm -hmm. are complicated. Talk to me a little bit more about that. One of the concerns that I am seeing so much in my work, I think for a number of reasons, people are exhausted, people are depleted, cognitive Mm -hmm. overload, any number of reasons. It's not confusing to me, but that many folks I work with, and certainly I'm seeing this with society, there's an increase in being quite reductive, flat analysis, not being as curious as I think would benefit Mm -hmm. us to say nothing of the decreasing compassion, empathy, grace, humility, curiosity, all of that. So I'm struck by what you're saying in terms of through this work, even though you you know, are on the receiving end and you have seen lots and lots and lots of like, really, I mean, from horrific to just, you gotta be kidding me, like a big continuum. And mm-hmm. you're coming out of that with increased compassion. So can you say a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so I worked quite a long time on child safety Um, and through my work on child safety I got to work with some really amazing experts in the child safety space and I got to speak with them you know over the course of 10 years and as I you know heard more research from that community and more experts come out of the woodworks with like new discoveries and all these things I sort of had this evolution of, oh, people who, this is the worst, right? Like mm-hmm. child child sexual abuse is the worst thing that mm-hmm. most people could imagine mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. certainly the worst thing I could imagine. Sure. Um, and it's an area where I would think I would never, ever have compassion for somebody who caused harm to a child in mm-hmm. that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: As I understood more and more research in that space, I started to think, I don't know that solving this problem for children, which is obviously what the goal the goal is, is to is to prevent more children from being harmed. Mm -hmm. I don't know that preventing harm to children can be done without actually having compassion for people who want to cause harm to children. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is there's actually quite a large body of work to point to um, this. There are ways to, you know, treat pedophilia. There's ways to address sexual attraction to minors mm-hmm. early on. And that's not everyone. Not everyone can be prevented from harming a child, mm-hmm. but there's actually a large portion of people who could be treated and we don't do it because we don't want to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. We don't want to believe that there is a gray area and that people are not only good or only bad. Of course, no matter what, we have to prevent harm to children, you know, at all costs, right? So that can't be negotiated, but it is not working to throw people in jail. That is not reducing the problem. And we don't address it because we don't even want to have conversations about sex, let alone child sexual abuse, um, or admit that maybe, you know, humanizing someone who could do something so horrific could be a solution to the problem that we're actually trying to solve. And So what I mean when I say I have, you know, become more compassionate over time. And Mm -hmm. I, of course, chose the worst example that I could possibly choose. I'm sure everyone's turned off this podcast by now.
0: (laughs) No, Maggie, Um, I mean, this is this is uh, what we need to be talking about societally is (laughs) having a more sophisticated, deeper, more layered, more complex understanding of things.
1: So when I, what I, what I guess I've seen is I've had exposure, you know, I've never called myself an expert in child sexual abuse, but what I would say is I've had so many conversations with experts in all of these topics because I've been working on it all for so long, right? right? Like, you know, I, I worked on work related to eating disorders. I worked on work related to suicide prevention, and I've been fortunate enough to work with people in this space who have like the real expertise in, in this space And what it has taught me across all these different topics is that solving the problem is always so much more nuanced than, you know, blocking it or shutting it down or, um, or just kind of like seeing things in a black and white way. And if you, if you choose to do that, you're not going to ever solve the problem that you're trying to solve.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So it's just sort of, fortunately, I've, I've, been in this space long enough to see there's so many layers under the surface layer on, on all of these problems. And I've been able to like see that firsthand. And I consider myself fortunate to have a job where I, I get to have that understanding. Right. And, and that's like a, at, at, at sort of even still a surface level, right?
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I really, really appreciate you being willing to share that. And so what, okay. So let's, let's take, take, what you're sharing there. What have you then done to be able to navigate that both professionally, where I imagine you're doing a lot of educating of other folks and a lot of difficult conversations to say nothing in your personal life, where you're trying to help folks who you care about, or also because you're trying to make a difference out there societally beyond where you're working, how are you having those conversations? I mean, how are you having those conversations? And also, Maggie, how are you coming back to a place of self-respect so that you can engage in these conversations, even when folks might be tripping as you're talking about it? Folks might have very, very strong views to the contrary. And like you said, there's just lots of these conversations folks are not trying to have.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's very true. That's such a good question. And you probably hit the nail on the head in terms of the thing that I personally can find the most draining is always starting from zero to one. There are so many people who would love to, quote unquote, solve the problem of suicide prevention, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you don't think people have been trying to do that for 30 years or 50 years or however long. I mean, way before that, Um, something that can be particularly draining for me personally is reading articles that have a gross misunderstanding of these topics. Mm -hmm. And also just thinking about the people who I know in this space who've been working. I know someone really well who is in the suicide prevention space, for example, and he's incredible. He's been in this space for, you know, like 40 years. Mm-hmm. And I just think about him every time I see these articles that I know get it so wrong right. um, and how draining that must be on him. So the reason I say that is because you asked me how I navigate these conversations. And my first response is setting boundaries for myself. Mm-hmm. Why am I educating someone? Do I need to educate everyone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I certainly would love to. I love to spew all of the information that I know. Right. I, right. I love sharing information. But I uh, I have to be really critical about when I'm going to do that because mm-hmm. I could do that 24 hours a day. Right. I could find you know a, an Instagram account and start commenting away on why this and that is wrong. Mm-hmm. I could find you know I could find a million articles to rant about. Mm-hmm. Um, I could always be having another conversation with someone you know even internally at my company where. Mm people have a misunderstanding, but are just interested in the space. Mm -hmm. And the first, my first approach is no, I don't want to have these conversations all of the time. Mm -hmm. And I need to really reserve my energy for the people that I should be influencing, educating, and who can help Mm -hmm. rather than people who are like only interested for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, may not be interested tomorrow.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So I would say that's my first response is boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, My second response is I, or my, the second way that I navigate it is really bringing it back to always bringing it back to the problem. What problem are we trying to solve? You know, can we align at that level? Can we align Mm -hmm. on, we are trying to, you know, uh, support people who are going through a crisis and are experiencing men eating disorder. Can we align that that's what we're trying to do? Okay, great. Next level of detail. Who should we bring in on this conversation? Mm -hmm. I'm always an advocate for trying to bring in experts where possible. Um, And then I rely heavily on what is the research telling us? What are we actually seeing on the platform? You know, or what are we actually seeing happen out there versus what do we, what are our preconceived notions about what this topic is like? Right. Um, It is also typically a space where it takes a long time for people to onboard. Mm -hmm. And usually at bigger companies, um, and I bet this is true of other many other sort of like similar social good spaces at any other like if you're in a social good programmatic role at some big company i'm sure they experience the same thing mm-hmm. it takes a long time for people to onboard and it can be an exhausting process yeah um because it's people try a bunch of things typically that don't work before they believe the things that you're saying and so you just kind of have to go in knowing it's going to take me repeating this information seven or eight times and it may not always be like I'm credible off the bat, right? Mm-hmm. It may take having this conversation several times or me bringing in someone who is more credible in this space than I am or me, sh- you know, making this case in whatever way. It's it's not an easy case to make. Mm-hmm. Um, to, trust and safety work is not like an easy conversation to have or an easy type of work to get prioritized. Mm-hmm. So I have the conversation sort of like over time.
0: Right. So... Building on what you're saying, and the tell me if this is just a stupid question, but I, I am really curious to hear your thoughts on this. I recognize that I am somebody who is very biased against social media. (laughs) Um, So let's, let's go back to just, um, you know, what you're in terms of child sexual abuse and suicide prevention, Mm -hmm. eating disorders. You know, I, I, I know that about myself and I of course understand that there's complexity to that and that there can be some really, really, really good uses for social media. Not surprising Mm -hmm. to you, of course, and our listeners that so much of what I get called in for are the places that it is just so incredibly problematic, dangerous, damaging, et cetera. So just I just kind of want to ask you from all of your experience, if I was to ask you, which I am right now, what do you think about (laughs) social media? Here we are, 2022. What are your thoughts on social media?
1: Wow, that is a big question. Um, and unfortunately my answer is feels like a cop out. So I'm trying to think of a second answer, but my, my gut response to that is social media is a tool that can be used basically for good or for bad. Um, and for everything in between, I think it's really useful when you're connecting to people that, you know. And I think it's really useful when you're connecting with people who have like shared interests as you like, you know, I've seen really powerful support groups. I volunteered for that group, Pantsuit Nation. I don't know if you know about that group, but uh there is this like large Facebook group, you know, and that great gained so much momentum and was such a powerful community. I still remember I was moderating that group when the 2016 elections were happening and we were seeing live Um, people's, you know, reactions. So the way the group worked was you had to give permission to share. So Mm -hmm. the moderators had to approve each, each story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was doing that, you know, and we were doing it and we actually had like a huge queue of, (laughs) of stories to approve or not. And I was doing it as the election results were rolling in and Mm -hmm. you just saw the stories move from these stories of like hope and power and celebration to really bad stories, you know, really hard and, and troubling stories from people. And so you can, you know, it it became very quickly like a group where we were supporting Mm -hmm. um, instead of celebrating and empowering and it just kind of transitioned. And that's all of that stuff is, you know, someone else's story to like the the whole evolution of that is someone else's story to tell who was in charge of that group. But my point in saying that is, I think those are the moments where social media is really powerful, Mm -hmm. is creating communities where people can connect. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a whole lot of things that come with that, um, that are also negative, right? Mm -hmm. Just like any other space. Um, I personally am increasingly less interested in spending like time on my screen Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Mm -hmm. from that perspective Mm -hmm. I'm sort of become anti-social media you know I Mm -hmm. try to spend less and less time on it because I don't think it's healthy for me to be like staring at a screen um I don't think it's necessarily healthy for me to be like engaging in every you know every single post that's in my feed because all of I have organized my entire like you know social media feeds to be all like social good content. So Mm -hmm. it's it's like, it's just a barrage of posts about ways that I could be doing more advocacy, you know? Um, And I think that it's, it takes a lot of practice to get better at kind of like moderating that Mm -hmm. in yourself,
0: Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah.
1: So I don't know. I feel mixed about it, I guess is my real answer. Mm -hmm. I feel pretty mixed about it. Um, I, I, do feel like the generation below me or after me has become more adept at using social media in healthier ways. I see a lot of comments on platforms like TikTok that are people actually engaging with each other in like pretty responsible ways. Like someone mm-hmm. will post something that seems concerning and every all the comments below are pointing them to like, resources that, you know, Mm -hmm. years ago, I would have tried to build into some tool that we could deliver, you know, and now it's like the community is kind of doing the work Mm -hmm. for them.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And that's new, you know, people know the words trauma dumping. Mm -hmm. There's like all of this sort of like compassionate outreach to people who are having a hard time. Mm -hmm. And that's just that's like a whole evolution that has come about in the last I don't know, three years, four years, something like that. Right,
0: right, right. So let's say you have someone in your life who you love, 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 and they're young and they're wanting to get on social media. Mm -hmm. With everything you've seen and all the expertise you have, what would your (laughs) response be?
1: It's just unrealistic that they're not going to do it. I just, it's just not, they're going to, mm-hmm. it's just a reality. So I wouldn't even think about what, what's my response. Like, are they going to? No, anyway? so not if. Like, yes.
0: Yeah. So not it. Oh, I see. But, I see. But what would your response be in terms of, okay. How to have now navigate it? Because you know more Maggie than, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> You know so much, and so given Mm -hmm. what you know is riding on it.
1: Yeah. My response to that would be, to a parent, my response to that would be, be as open as you can um, and do it with them to the extent that you can. Always be a place that they can share what's going on. Never never ask, like, why did you do that? Why did you post that? It's not going to go well. Um, I, you know, it's when I used to work on sextortion or now people would call it sexual exploitation. There's many, that may actually be an outdated term for it, but we used to call it sexortion. Um, you know, the kids who, and for those people who don't know, sextortion is when you share a nude image of yourself and the person on the receiving end of that image uses that image to blackmail you. And there can be all kinds of reasons why. They could be blackmailing you for additional images. They could be blackmailing you for, um, you know, staying in a relationship with them. They could be blackmailing you for money, which is actually typically adults and not children um, because children don't have money. So that is slightly less, you know, slightly less harmful, but it's all bad. When I was working on sextortion, the kids that I saw get out of that situation quickly immediately could understand that something had happened that was wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They immediately were comfortable sharing what their Their first instinct was to share with like a parent or a teacher or somebody who would actually be a resource to them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that means that they had the trust with that person to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, typically, if a, if a child is running into something that is problematic, and that's a really bad scenario. Mm-hmm. But there's many many versions of this that sure. are like way less problematic, right? They're getting bullied, or someone just makes a hateful comment towards them, or they see, you know, something that's that's slightly violent, mm-hmm. and they're maybe drawn to it, maybe not, you know, something way way less problematic um, and harmful. If their first when they're in that situation, they probably already feel like they're kind of doing something wrong. Like Mm. maybe I shouldn't have gone to this account. Maybe I shouldn't have gone to this corner of the internet. Maybe I originally made an inflammatory comment and someone's comment back to me is, you know, increasingly inflammatory, but (laughs) I did something wrong in the first place. Like their first instinct is some kind of shame. Mm -hmm. And if their response after that is, if I tell my mom or dad about this or my guardian or my teacher mm-hmm. or whoever I trust, if I, if I go to an authority figure and their response is going to be anger at me for doing that, I'm not going to share it. And instead I'll either comply or keep going right. or just like hide, hide it, you know, and hope that it goes away. And those, those are the the cases that really escalate.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I think that it's not, if something will go wrong, it's what will go wrong and when mm-hmm. and trusting your gut. Right. <laughs> uh, paying attention to the like spidey senses mm-hmm. and immediately reaching out to somebody who can help would mm-hmm. be kind of my main message. Mm-hmm. But kids need the structure and the the safety net to have those conversations. And unfortunately, a lot of places just shut shut it down. Right. And yeah. it's it's a, kind of an unrealistic approach.
0: Yeah. OK. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I want to ask you another question about, you know, my experience of you. Such an awesome sense of humor, lots of life force, very, 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 I mean, positive isn't the right word. Glass half full. And with respect, You were at a company, (laughs) Facebook, where people have a lot of strong opinions about it. I'm wondering what you can share with our listeners and maybe with a particular direction to so many of the adolescents and young adults I'm working with, where how do you, when you're in a place, it can be a nonprofit, it can be a massive corporation, anywhere in between, of course, any kind of a system where morale gets challenging either because mm-hmm. of what's coming in from the outside whether it's founded or not founded or the ecosystem internally is some you know problematic how did you navigate and what is your advice for navigating when for whatever reason externally or internally things are really fraught that is
1: a great question i have been in that situation for a long time for so many reasons. Um, and in trust and safety are never out of that situation because you're always, if your work is in the news, it's almost never for a positive reason. Right. Things like those articles that you see about content moderations are not motivating to other people who work in trust and safety. They're a bummer because it doesn't really accurately represent the field as a whole. Right. It's like one very narrow experience. And so there's kind of like, you know that's just one tiny example yes. but um but the pressures that the company faces or any internal disagreements about things like i I've been in that situation for a really long time, and the protective factors that I found that I would say I would pass along to other people who are in that situation is one if you're in a situation that you're choosing to be in, always ask yourself why I'm here. Mm. Why am I at this company? Why am I on this team? Why am I at this school? Um, why am I at this organization? What is my purpose here? Because if you don't know why you're there, you can leave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if and and and, and that, this is why I say if you're in a place that you're choosing, because some people can't leave, right? Mm-hmm. You may not have, you may, it may be your only stream of income, or you may be in a situation where you're like supporting a lot of other people, and you can't change your change your pay grade. Mm-hmm. Or there's so many reasons, you know, you're at a school where you don't have agency. So I'm I'm saying if you if you do have that agency, figure out always ask yourself why you're there. I don't care if it's daily, I don't care if it's monthly. When I was trying to figure out if I wanted to leave Facebook and it was actually not really for these reasons, but just when I was trying to make the decision. It's a huge decision. Do I leave or do I stay? Mm-hmm. I figured out what were the things that I needed most from my role and my job. Mm-hmm. And what were the positive things and what were the things that were problematic for me like you know draining Mm -hmm. and every day I rated myself on a one to three scale Mm. on each of those factors and I did it for two months
0: Mm. and I
1: made a pact with myself and with my husband but mostly with myself that if in two months I was still overall in the same place that I you know started from I was I was then I was gonna leave Mm -hmm. and that is what happened Mm. um And I did that because I think it's very easy to convince yourself over time. This will get better. This was just last week. Um, You know, if I just get through this project or if I did this, just one thing change. It's so easy to blame everything else or like think that something's going to change in the future. No one's coming to save you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're saving. You have to save yourself. So. It's, or you have to make yourself happy. So that is why I was like, I'm going to objectively do this every day. Mm -hmm. It's not revolutionary. It's just mood tracking, but you have to know why you're there. So that's my first thing. Mm -hmm. My second thing, um, setting aside if you can or can't do that would be really find the people around you who are the people who have a shared sense of purpose as you do. Mm -hmm. And you don't need that many of them. Um, And I would strongly recommend not just spending your time complaining with those people. (laughs) So, (laughs) because I mean, I'm saying that from a place of self awareness. I've absolutely been in that place. Yeah. Um, If you can find a couple of people who are motivated by the similar, like, positive things that motivate you, Mm -hmm. find those people Mm -hmm. and. And spend time with those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be sort of my second thing is, is I found my team a hugely protective factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third thing is really what is in your control and what is not in mm-hmm. your control. Um, and that is a lesson that I learn on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, and sometimes you, the problem is that when you're in a role where you have to like influence or educate, you're actually responsible for things you can't control. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to remember that as well. Um, is that just because this is my responsibility does not mean that I have full control over it. Right. And I can, what I do have control over is going into this meeting well-prepared. I don't even sometimes have control over that if this meeting came up last minute, but like how much effort I put into like a specific thing or how thoughtful I am with feedback, or there's a lot of things I can control. Right. Um, and, and really sorting that out for yourself. I think when you're in a company or on a team or a profession where there's a lot of like either misinformation or pressure or negativity coming your way, um, you can't control most of that. Mm -hmm. And is it important to engage with even
0: right?
1: Sometimes it's not.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) I read like, a, you know, a fraction of a percent of articles that came out about Facebook when I was working there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, always the good ones, but, <laughs> but no, so now had I read the bad ones, but you know, I, I, read and, and sometimes it is important to read the bad stuff because it keeps you informed, mm-hmm. but it's not important to read all of it. Right. Um, and yeah, that would be my like third thing. So my, my three things are like, why are you there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, uh, being critical with yourself on that, and don't be complacent about why you're somewhere. That's mm-hmm. the fastest. That's the fastest path to me to like burning yourself out. Second thing is um, finding the people who can share positive things that motivate you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my third thing is really around its boundaries, control, whatever you want to call that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And building on what you're saying just for our listeners who like to get into the minutia in terms yeah. of the why am i here what is my intention and i mm-hmm. absolutely agree with you that's one of the most important things certainly when i talk with folks about vicarious trauma and overwhelm give us a little bit more specifics if you're willing in terms of you don't have to you know share exactly the details of what was on your list but exactly how you did that so you wrote down what was important to you and mm-hmm. then you tracked it in terms of it's happening, it's not happening or how you're feeling about it. Can you give a little bit, give, mm-hmm. give us a little bit more details there?
1: Yeah. So I, I don't know if psychology, I feel like you call it like locus of control, mm-hmm. but my ability to affect change and my belief that I could affect change mm-hmm. um, some kind of like joy mm-hmm. um, resources Oh, creativity mm-hmm. is the obvious one. Mm-hmm. That was the one that was making like my downfall. By the end, I was like, I'm not thinking creatively at all. Mm. I'm just applying old solutions to new things. <laughs> um I'm plug and playing. It's not fun for me or for anybody else, probably. Mm. So anyway, I I think that those are like my four. I probably am not remembering all of them, but um, those are like the four ones that I remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then and when I say resources, uh, I'm encompassing things, not just people think of like money or people on your team. I also mean like thought partnership or um, I'm set up with the right. I'm doing a job where I have like the skill set that matches what I'm doing or the ability to like change that in some way or the time to change it. And mm-hmm. before this is due, like those kind of resources, it's like, um, that's more what I mean. And then, you know, on the, and the, the downside was things like anxiety, exhaustion, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: you know, it's, and what's interesting is I've had anxiety. I don't have, I'm not like clinically have anxiety, mm-hmm. but I've had, uh, times in my life where I was anxious related to work. And I was thriving in those, Mm -hmm. you know, times. And that is why I put the positive things on there and not just the negative, because I've always had some of those negatives, but the negatives were distracting me because the positives weren't there anymore. Yes. So I was like consumed with like the negative part.
0: Right. Okay. And then you'd have, then you'd rate it in terms of just like low, medium, high. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I thought. I was like, eh, it could, I could do like a 10 point scale, whatever. Mm-hmm. I just felt like low, medium, high was pretty good. Yeah,
0: right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, Maggie, that I just so appreciate about that is it, this is something that I know for myself um, has been something, you know, back in the day in particular that it took a lot to navigate. And it's one of the things I'd say I most talk with people about, I mean, for my whole career and certainly with everything going on over the last few years is just so many people asking like, how do I know when it's time to go? You know, Mm -hmm. and exactly what you're saying of it can be so hard to maintain that context perspective and just accurate, you know, I mean, so many people talk about how humans are not (laughs) excellent self reporters. And so being able to have an accurate view of oh wait, things are getting worse or things are getting better. Or I'm in this habit where I keep saying, you know, yes, maybe in the fall, things are going to shift. Or if we get this funding, the whole like, if, 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 if delayed. And obviously days can turn into weeks, can turn into months, can turn into years. So I so appreciate both the insight you had there, the discipline you had there, and then just your agreement with yourself to be really honest.
1: Yeah, I have to give my husband credit there because I think he is such a good force in terms of he, I don't think everybody's in either they're on their own making these decisions on their own, or they're getting the counter narrative of like, why would you quit somewhere that's like, you know, famously a good company to work for, for X, Y, and Z reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we haven't had kids yet. They have really generous maternity leave, like mm-hmm. all this stuff, which, um People get those messages a lot. And in fact, since I have left, I've had so many conversations with people who are in the place that I was in and have seemingly almost no permission to leave
0: Mm.
1: within themselves. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's most of those people I've, one of them has left most of the people who I've had conversations with who are like desperate to leave. It's, they're not leaving any, they have not left, you know? Yeah and it's no one's keeping them there mm-hmm. people leave that company all the time it's it's going to be fine mm-hmm. but they don't be, it's like they don't believe it right. and it's it's this perception that you're lucky to work there or um i don't know there's so many different yes. things right it's right. so i guess what i'm trying to say is um i have a really supportive partner who is like yes, you should leave a situation that is no longer serving you and you should do it before you are no longer serving your team. Right. Um, and is also totally, totally allows me to make that decision and doesn't kind of pressure me either way, but is just validating that mm. like, yes, I'm observing that you've been un- unhappy for a couple of months or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, unhappy is like a all encompassing word, but I think he, I am really fortunate to have a partner in that way, you know.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I I recognize that not everyone has that type of support. Right.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, with what you're bringing up there, this is something that we talk about a lot. That isolation is just one of the most damaging forces. And you can be in a family and be isolated. You can be in a relationship, be isolated. You can live with eight housemates and be isolated. And I do think that there's something. You know, you're bringing up a really important point about. People have very strong opinions about Facebook on a whole range, right? And then there's wait, c- they do. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's certain places, you know. So some people would be like, Ugh, why ever be there?" Are some people, exactly like you're saying, I'm like, "Why would you leave this company?" Like think about the food they give you, and you know, the track on top of the roof or whatever. And then there's other fields and disciplines, both where people are like, "You're such an angel for doing that work," and other places where people are like, "Why in God's name would you ever go into that field?" So that whole thread that you're talking about that's so important to be able to have some self-reflection and an intimate relationship with yourself where you're able to honestly face what the reality is of how you're actually doing and you know if you want to look at it in terms of cost benefit or just the toll like is it edifying is it nourishing and is it taking a toll is it causing harm mm-hmm. yeah yeah second to last question Maggie. You took some time off before accepting your new job. I want you to just share with us why, why that is because it's another place that I really try to support people both in pacing themselves and having plan B's and taking time off. So why did you decide to take time off?
1: I started working at Facebook and I keep calling it Facebook. It's meta now. I started working at Facebook in 2010, pretty much right out of college and I had worked there, even though I worked in several different roles, and i I was always in trust and safety, but I worked in several different roles, and I had only worked at one company in my professional life. I felt like leaving there, I didn't know what I wanted to do next. Mm. and it didn't it felt like what if I was to just move from one company to another company, I would be taking a role either exactly like the role I had or the exact opposite, that in either way, I would be reacting to the role that I had, rather than incorporating the experience I had and deciding for myself what I want to do next. Right. I just didn't know. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know what I wanted. And so I felt like I needed time to clear my head and incorporate my experience into my life so that I kind of knew what I was passionate about. (laughs) When I graduated college, I obviously knew I wasn't going to get you know, I was just starting out. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was going to get some entry level position. And I remember I just made a couple of criteria for myself of, you know, I want it to involve technology. I want it to involve like psychology, whatever. I I made some kind of like short list. Mm -hmm. And I took, I think my first job out of college was I worked at like the Apple retail store. And I was like, great. Mm -hmm. It involves technology, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Um, checking one off the list. And I didn't know what that list for myself was. Mm -hmm. I knew like one or two things, but I didn't really know what that list for myself was. And so that was really why I took the time off. Mm -hmm. Um, During that time, I think, and I know this is a familiar topic to you, but I really felt like I reconnected with my body and really got to understand and reconnect with how my experience like affected my body, mm-hmm. and um, what kind of it was also like in 2000. It was at the end of 2020, mm-hmm. so it was not just work. It was like also pandemic right. stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I had like a pretty big, let it all out kind of couple of months, mm-hmm. and um, I think that was really important to me. And I remember during that happening, I thought to myself. Okay, I have, you know, I had a couple of panic attacks mm-hmm. and um I, <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, if I didn't if this was not happening now, I think I would have just it would just not have happened mm-hmm. and it would be much worse later. Yeah. And I'm speaking from a place of I ha- I do proactively take care of myself. I exercise regularly. I don't work all the time. I have a therapist. Like I have a lot of systems right. in place yes. um, for self-care. And I, th- I still think that had I not taken that time off, I think I that would have come out later mm-hmm. and it would have been worse. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I don't know, this is not like a warning to anyone, but if if you have the ability to give yourself some space and time, yeah. I would strongly encourage it.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Maggie. Last question. We try to offer listeners some really concrete strategies. (laughs) Share with us, if you're willing, three non-negotiables that you employ daily-ish to really keep yourself going. What are three of your favorite practices? Three of my favorite practices.
1: One is spending time with my dog. Mm -hmm. She is just life-giving and doesn't care what else is going on and is just very happy to see me. (laughs) (laughs) Two is eating. I know that sounds really basic, but I am somebody who can get really sucked into work and just forget to eat like for sure. sure. And I can just look up from my computer at 4 p.m. and it's like, I think I ate breakfast. So Mm -hmm. eating and I eat nutritious food during the day. I don't, I, everyone has their thing for me it's sugar like if I have sugar during the day I'm just gonna slump Mm. caffeine doesn't get to me as much but so I have pretty like you know I'm pretty careful around like what I'm feeding myself in the day Mm -hmm. and that it is full of carbs and full of like things that will actually give me energy Mm -hmm. full of potassium like all that stuff Mm -hmm. so um eating spending time with my dog and what is my third non-negotiable I think it's just something fun every day, mm. even if it's small, mm-hmm. even if it is, <laughs> you know, even if it's like talking to a friend for 10 minutes, like even if all I can manage is joking around with someone for a couple of minutes, mm-hmm. <laughs> but this, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a br- grim picture. It's almost never that, that little <laughs> amount of time, but something fun. Right. I cannot get through my day without something fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, Maggie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And really getting to work with you over those years that we did was such a joy for me. And it was such a privilege. Certainly, I remember so well, your colleagues and being in your presence and Watching and experiencing for me how inspirational it was to be around you and watch you maneuver in the very thoughtful, very intentional, humble, self-respecting, incredibly insightful ways and exceedingly effective ways you did, that was such a treat for me to get to witness. And I will continue to hold you up as an example to so many people I work with who feel a sense of despair about not being able to affect change. So I just can't thank you enough for the colleague time we've had together and then the friendship that's developed around it. And thank you very much for taking time out to talk with us today my gosh, I could never live up
1: to that description of myself, but thank you so much. And it's, I mean, I, of course I would, I love talking with you and, um, I, I cannot count the amount of people that I have distributed your resources to by way of, you know, both of your books. Um, I, it's like the number one thing that I always tell people and I bought your book for like so many, so many teammates. Um, and so I, I just, I love, I love being able to spend any amount of time with you, Uh, your work is sort of like the foundation of a lot of the work that I've done over the years. So thank you so much um, for just continued support and friendship and for putting your work out there because it benefits
0: everybody. Our podcast, Future Tripping, is a Trauma Stewardship Institute production. I, Laura, am your host and producer. Our incredible executive producer and sound engineer is Olivia P. Sunier, without whom this podcast would not be possible. It's edited and mixed by Tom Stiles with original music by Cameron DeVore. Our graphic designer is Evie Burroughs white Thank you for downloading and subscribing. And as always, please give us a holler with any questions or suggestions. We can be found at traumastewardship.com and on Instagram at Laura. There you can find both an email and phone number where you can ask your questions of our upcoming guests. I am grateful you joined us. Please remember, however your overwhelm is feeling today, you're not alone. You're in good company, and I look forward to being with you here on Future Tripping again next week.